Thank you, Evan. We appreciate that. Well, find your place with me in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel chapter number 8 is where we are. We are almost halfway through our journey of preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Before I get started today, I want to take you back to, I think it was last September, we sent out a group of folk, I don't know, about 30 or so, to start a church in Panama City, and that church is Grace Covenant Church. And it just so happens that we have Thomas Gamble back with us this morning, who is the teaching pastor at Grace Covenant, and I've asked Thomas if he don't mind, we want to know what God is doing and how it goes with the brethren in Panama City at Grace Covenant. So Thomas, give us a synopsis, man. What's going on, Grace Church? It's good to see you guys. In true Richie fashion, he did ask me to do this, but he asked me to do it 30 seconds ago. So um, you're going to get what is freshest on my mind about Grace Covenant Church. Uh, first, when I came in, man, I love you guys. You guys have been such an encouragement even before we started. Um, the Lord just bringing back all that he did um, in sending Grace Covenant out down to Panama City. Since we've launched in October, with our, um, we started with, with 19 adult members um, and then some kids going to the, to the 30 that Richie mentioned. Since then, the, we've been doing membership classes as often as we can because the Lord just continues to bring us people. We're doing another one this Saturday with uh, eight adults that we're taking through a new membership class. Um, the Lord has allowed us to, to baptize two in the last six months, two new believers um, into the church. And so, um, man, we're just, we're plugging along. We're, we're preaching the gospel every week. We're following in uh, Dr. John's. He forced me to find a school and get involved in the school and do everything you can. So there's one just down the block, uh, Cherry Street Elementary, that we're the principal and I are starting to get to know one another. We're starting to do stuff with them as, as they're allowing people back into the school. So um, I want to ask you guys, keep praying for us um, because we're, we're trying to, to get out in the community, which has been kind of weird in Panama City uh, during this kind of COVID but kind of not time. So um, keep praying for us that the gospel would go out, that it would fall on um, good soil, and that the Lord would, would save his people. So. We love you guys. We're so grateful for you sending us out, continuing to, to support us down your neighbors to the south. So uh, we're really grateful for you guys. Thank you, Thomas. That's, That's exactly what we wanted to hear, man. <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? Yeah. And that, along with a lot of other reasons, is why we are committed to being an ascending church. Low budget, but high effective. Highly effective. All right, here we go. Mark chapter... Eight, and we're going to begin in verse number 27 and read through 9-1. Because as you are well aware, the scripture uh, or the chapter divisions within scripture are kind of man-made. You know, it, it didn't come like this in its original form. So since they are man-made, they can kind of be misleading at times. And for the life of me, I, this is one of those places where I can't understand why verse 1 of chapter 9 goes in chapter 9 rather than as I think it should be and I could give a defense for that if you wanted to be bored for about 10 minutes but uh, I'll forego that you can just take my word for it that's why we're going through 9-1 okay because that's the natural break of the pericope that Jesus starts in verse 34 so here we go Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi 
And on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Several years ago, when I had a lot less to do, it seems, than I do today, I actually wrote the manuscript of a book that I just kind of lost interest in, but I'm sure I, the manuscript's still laying around somewhere. And the title of that book was going to be Cliché Christianity. Because what I have noticed after being a pastor and missionary and in ministry for now over 30 years is that a lot of what we believe really isn't Bible. It's just these uh, little soundbite tweets and cliches that we have always heard. And the problem is most of these cliches are simply inconsistent and incongruent with the gospel. For example, I mean, I had a ton of them uh, in this manuscript, and one of them that comes to mind right now is this one. Well, there's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. I want to tell you that that is inconsistent with the gospel message. See, sometimes the most dangerous place you can be is in the center of God's will. Most of the time it's not the most comfortable place for sure, but even though it's dangerous and you might lose your life in the center of God's will, there's still no better place to be because there's no other place where you're going to find peace and all of those things that come with walking with God and being in the center of His will. So yeah, that's just something that's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches us about salvation. Man, I could go on and on because I have a laundry list of cliches and I hear them on a regular basis because Southern Baptists are great about having these cliches which really aren't biblical at all. You see, consistency is a big, big deal. If you are inconsistent, then you really don't have truth. 
You see, by nature, truth cannot be inconsistent, nor can truth contradict itself. If it does, it immediately excludes itself from the realm of truthfulness. Because one thing that truth will never do is truth never contradicts itself. And you see, I think this, that's what this passage here is all about. When you put both of these blocks of Scripture together, I think what Jesus is doing here is showing us what a consistent confession looks like. And you see, that is the goal of our life, is it not? The goal of our life is to be consistent with what we say and what we do. It's to have our behavior be consistent with our beliefs. Because anything less is not only inconsistent, but it's hypocritical and it's untruth. Uh, back when I had a lot of time on my hands, I wrote a paper, by the way. I, this was uh, back in my doctoral days at seminary. I wrote a paper, and the entire thrust of the paper was showing that the process or the, uh, or the entire sanctification process is just that. It's to eliminate inconsistencies from our lives. Inconsistencies in what we say. Because if you listen to someone long enough, you'll be able to pick out an inconsistency. All you got to do is turn your news on and watch the world news on any given night. And if you have a sharp enough ear, you'll pick up how they contradict themselves with inconsistencies. So the process of sanctification is us becoming a consistent witness. When Jesus said, I am the way... The truth. You see, that's what he was getting at. Because he never contradicted himself. He was never inconsistent. If he would have been, then he would not have been truth. But here's the reason, you know, that he is truth and this book is truth because there are no contradictions at all. Now, you may not understand it and you may see something as a contradiction, but I promise you the problem is right here, not right here. This is just a basic starting tenet that there's no contradiction, there's no mixture of inconsistency within the content of this book. So let's look now and see what it is that Jesus says about a consistent witness. And there are two parts to it, and it does follow that basic outline. What we believe and how we behave must be congruent or consistent. So in verses 27 through 33, what we have here is the fact that Jesus desires a consistent confession with our lips. See, that's where it starts, with what you say. So notice what he does. He draws out of them, as hard as it may be, he draws out of his disciples this consistent confession. Now check it out, what he does here. This consistent fashion, it can be based on several things. Number one, he starts with popular opinion. So he asks them, he says, Who do men or who are people saying that I am? So Jesus started here with popular opinion. Now that is not a very strong base for us to establish a profession of faith. Because here's what popular opinion will do. Popular opinion will probably lead you down the wrong trail. And there's a lot of folk today that are still basing 
their faith on popular opinion, what somebody else said rather than what God's Word says based on popular opinion. Here's how it comes through. I hear this a lot. Folk will say, well, Pastor Richie, I've just never heard it like that before. And you know what that tells me? When folks say that, it tells me several things about them. But number one, it tells me that the most authoritative thing in their life is not what the Word says, but it's what they've always heard. And they'll negate the Word in order to maintain what they've always heard. Or here's how I will also hear it. I'll say, well, well, you know, Daddy always used to say about that. That's nothing more than popular opinion. So Jesus asked me, he says, hey, what, what do men say about me? But notice he didn't stay there long. Because the consistent confession that he is drawing out of them isn't based on popular opinion, but it's based on personal observation. And here's the rub. I tell folk that your theology has got to be yours. It's got to be yours. And a lot of folk are still living off of what mom and dad said or what somebody else said. And Jesus quickly runs by. It doesn't matter what the crowds are saying. It doesn't matter about popular opinion. What matters is what are you saying? And has your theology ever become your own or is it just somebody else's that's been packaged and handed to you and you bought it? Based on personal observation. So who do you say he is based on personal observation? Well, what can I observe? How, how can I really know? Well, there are several ways and I've listed them here. You can base your confession on personal observation because you have heard His Word. You've heard His Word. There's no other way to have a consistent confession unless it's based on thus saith the Lord. So when you hear His Word, that's when it begins to transfer from what other people are saying for popular opinion to mine. You start to put it all together yourself and it becomes your own. So these guys had been with him now. I mean, he's only six months away from the cross at this point. So they've been with him for two and a half years. They've been saturated in the Word of God. I mean, how would you like to have walked with Jesus? Slept where he sleeps. Eat where he eats. Relax where he relaxes. Hang out where he hangs out for two and a half years. My goodness. You see, these guys had a lot of personal observation experience. They had heard his word. But number two, you can also have this personal observation, not only because you've heard his word, but because you've seen his work. A consistent confession based on hearing his word, and on seeing His work. Hey, what have you seen God do lately? Man, I hope you don't have to reach back in the archives and pull out something that has dust on it from 10 or 15 years ago, the last time you've seen God do something. Because God is at work every day. 
Man, you want to blow somebody away, just walk up to them and say, Hey, tell me what God's doing in your life today. Hey, what have you seen God do in your ministry in the past week? See, that's personal observation which moves us more towards a consistent, non-contradictory confession of faith. But not only have we heard His Word and seen His work, but you've received the Father's witness. Did you hear the text that Dane read this morning? Jesus said, My Father has borne testimony of me. And His testimony is true. So here's the supernatural part that comes in. Somehow or another, you just know that God, God, but God helps guide you along the formulation of truth in your own life. As a matter of fact, isn't that what Peter said? I, I love Matthew's account of this because Jesus said to Peter when he said, You are the Christ. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now look here. You know theologically, it was okay for Jesus to use the word reveal in that context, but it's not okay for us to use it today. So since I'm a theological nerd and I have to have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed, I can't use God will reveal to you because God has already revealed. But you know what God does? God will sure illumine your mind to the truth that He's revealed in God's Word about who His Son is. That's what He does. And you see, the reason I say all that is because revelation is closed. He's not given new revelation. He's just given insight and illumination to the closed revelation that He's already given us. So yeah, when Peter said this, it wasn't because he had come to the conclusion totally on his own through personal observation, but he had had the experience of God the Father confirming in his heart the identity of God the Son. That's the supernatural part. Folks say to me, sometimes, Pastor Rich, I just don't see how somebody can't see this. Well, because here it is. Because unless the Father enlighten somebody's heart and mind, then their darkened understanding can in no way grasp the intricacy of who Jesus is. We've got to have help to do that because we're spiritually blind and deaf and dead. Now check out this. Not only did he draw out this consistent confession with their lips, but it's based on popular opinion, on personal observation, but I can tell you that a consistent confession of faith will be challenged by polar opposites. It'll be challenged. Oh, it's a challenge to live a consistent life. It's a challenge to stick with a consistent confession of faith. Check out the challenges that come through right here in this, in this, in this particular passage. Here are the polar opposites. Number one, the challenge comes with the polar opposites between the words of the Savior and the will of Satan. Now check out what it is that Jesus said to him. I mean, right after Peter is illumined, after God revealed the identity of his son to him, it's not two minutes later that... Satan uses him. And look what Jesus said to him. Get behind me, Satan. So there's a contrast. There's polar opposites. And here it is. 
when the going gets tough, are we going to stick with the words of Christ? Or are we going to be an instrument used of Satan? Now check out the other polar opposite. One is between the words of the Savior and the will of Satan. And the other comes between our confession of faith and the will of the flesh. Notice what Jesus said. Now here's something that's characteristic of satanic speech. Because that's basically what Jesus said. He wasn't literally calling Peter Satan, but he was saying that what you were doing is right in line with what Satan did to me when he tempted me in the wilderness. And here's what he tried to get him to do. He tried to get him to go around the cross. You Remember what the devil said to him? I'll give you the world and all its kingdoms. All you got to do is fall down and worship me. Hey, let's forget this cross business. Let's not go to the cross... And you see, that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was trying to force his will over God's will. Now here's the results of that when we do that. When we know what God wants and we say, no, here's what I want, then that's satanic. And here's what happens. Number one, it binds us, or excuse me, it blinds us to the supernatural. Now it's interesting to me here that while Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him for going to the cross, he didn't see the supernatural element in what Jesus had just said. Look with me again in verse number 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must... See that word? Underline it. It's a little three-letter word in the original language and it's known as a divine imperative. It means it's something that has been predetermined by God the Father and there is no other option. There's no way around it. It must happen. So there's no other way. And he uses a divine imperative there. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And look at this. You may want to underline this because this is what Peter missed in it. Peter totally missed this part. And after three days, rise again. Now if he hadn't have been blinded by the will of his flesh, and if he hadn't been blinded by the the desires of Satan, then he would have picked up on that. Wait a minute. I understand being crucified, but this rise again stuff, you got to back up a little bit and tell me some more about that. Because that's the supernatural, miraculous element in the bad news that Jesus shared with them. And son, listen, that smacks me upside the head. Because if you have a pessimistic bone in your body, you'll be just like Peter, and that's what you'll pick up every time. You'll totally miss the supernatural and what God's doing in your life and what God's saying, and you'll focus in tunnel vision on only the bad. You know anybody like that? Can I just be honest with you? There are some folk that are so dadgum frazzling negative and sourpuss and pessimistic until when I see them coming, I want to I, I be somewhere else and be talking to somebody else at the moment. You know what I'm saying? And, and the reason they are like that is because they are so dadgum self-centered and so worried about only what they want instead of what God wants until they can't see anything good, miraculous, or supernatural that God's doing. They only focus on the bad. 
And you see, that's exactly what Peter did. Peter totally missed Easter Sunday and what Jesus said. I mean, they should have stood up at that point and shouted, We don't like this cross business, but resurrection sounds pretty cool to us, Lord. It's going to mean I'm free. I'm free. Forever I'm free. And they just went right past it. Man, are, are you walking right past the good news? Maybe you need a, a mid-course change of direction spiritually so you don't miss the supernatural part of what it is that Jesus is saying. And that's exactly what Peter did. But let me show you something else that it'll do. Man, when, 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 when you let the will of Satan and the will of the flesh rule in your life, you're going to, number one, you're going to be blind to the supernatural of what God is doing. That's why when you ask some people, hey, what, God, what is God doing in your life? They get that deer in the headlight look like, whoop, they don't want you to know that you caught them off guard. They're searching their mind trying to come up with something real quick so they can sound spiritual. And the reason is because they're blind to the supernatural. So yeah, not only does it blind us to the supernatural, but get this, it borders on stupidity. I didn't know a better way to say that. Let me show you how it borders on stupidity. Check this out. Look what it is that Jesus... The Bible says, and He was stating the matter plainly. He wasn't speaking in parables. He was speaking in very clear Greek or Aramaic or whatever He spoke or Hebrew, whatever He was speaking... They couldn't miss it. He could, they couldn't miss it because he was speaking it plainly. And look at this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, let me show you what the word picture gives there because the Greek word put together, here, here's what it means. Seth, stand up. You're a little bit tall for me, but nonetheless, you're the closest one in reach. Colin won't sit on the front row no more. He's tired of getting beat up. Come up here and let me show you something. Here's what the word, here's what the word pictures. The word pictures that they are all they are all in the group, okay? Now I'm Peter and Seth is Jesus. Now I know you have to use your sanctified imagination, but do it with me here a little while. Seth is Peter. Here's what it is that 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 Peter did. Peter cut Jesus out of the group and he got in front of him like this. The word means to face and to rebuke. Have you ever taken your child that was doing something and you got right in their face and said, no, listen to me. You look at me and I'm going to tell you this one time and one time on. You ever done that? Don't lie and act spiritual in church. I know you have. You're connecting with me right now because you've done that. I know. So here he is. He's got Jesus just like this and he's telling him, oh, no, that is not the way it's going to go down. It's just not. So here he is. Think, think, how, think how stupid that is. Does that not border on, the stupidi on, on stupidity? Because here Peter is, a fisherman, taking incarnate God to the side and telling him how it's going to happen. Here's what Peter thought. Peter thought, if I can just get him alone, I can get him to see things my way. I can convince him to come to my side of the fence and know that my plan is better than what he just stated. But you know what? There's a lot of folk that live under that same presupposition. They think if they can just have a little talk with Jesus, even though they're not living right, He'll understand. Because after all, they've got all of these extenuating circumstances in their life. 
And if I can just pull him aside, I can get him to understand that the reason I can't be obedient to him or his word, he's going he's to listen to me. There's a lot of folk that think, you know, I've never been born again, but when I get to heaven, I can have a talk with Jesus and I can convince him how good I am and he's going to let me in. Listen, that's borderline stupidity. It's you telling the Son of God that your way is better than his way. Now watch this. Stay right here, Seth, because let me get my Bible and show you something else. It's going to make sense now. You see, Peter got him and he, he cut him out and he's doing this with him. And he's shaking him, having a good talk with him. Now, look what comes up next here in, uh, in, um, in verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples. So look here. Peter cut Jesus out of the crowd and he's having a little talk with him. The disciples are back there. Now, you know what Jesus did? Jesus took his shoulder, hands, put them on Peter's shoulder, and he turned him around like this. And now the disciples can not only hear him, they can read his lips. So now he's looking at Peter and talking to everybody, and here's what he says. Get thee behind me, Satan. You see? Thank you, Seth. You can sit down now. borders on stupidity to think that you can turn Jesus around and get him not to focus on what God wants him to do that is the cross this predetermined event from the foundation of the world but it's just as foolish when we think we can get him to see things our way and give us a pass that's totally contradictory to his word so yeah this is why Jesus was trying to draw out of them a consistent confession with our lips. Here Peter was. He said something. Now, 30 seconds later, he contradicted it by turning Jesus around and rebuking him. Well, check this out. Now, here's where it really gets, comes together with consistency. Because the verses 34 through 38 is all about the confession with our lives. So in verses 34 through 9-1, Jesus defines the consistent confession of our lives. You see, it's not just what we say, it's what we do. It's not just what we believe, it's how we behave if we're going to be consistent. And consistency, consistency, consistency is so important. So check this out. Let me point out a few things about this particular text. Notice Jesus gives a, a pretty good statement there in verse 34. And then I want you to take your pen and underline a few things. Number one in verse number 35, what's the first word? Underline it. In verse number 36, what's the first word? Underline it. Verse 37, what's the first word? Underline it. Verse 38, what's the first word? Four. All right, so here we go. Jesus was a good Southern Baptist preacher. He had a main point and four subpoints under it. That's what he's doing. He's given four reasons why this is right. Okay? Four irrefutable reasons. So check out what he does as he talks about now. He says, now this is a good time for me to teach you boys what consistent behavior looks like when it's consistent with your belief. So based on what Peter said, Peter says, if you believe that, if you believe that I am the Christ, if that's the confession of your lips, 
then here is the confession that you must have with your life. Are you following me so far? Alright, here we go. Notice what it is that Jesus says. The first thing He says, number one, is to enjoy His presence. He tells us three things that we must do. To enjoy His presence based upon the true confession of our lips. Now, notice why I say to enjoy His presence because look what He says. He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, look at verse 34, the words in red, If anyone wishes to come after me. Now, let's stop right there. Because here's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, you can't have that confession of faith and be found standing flat-footed for the rest of your life. Because if you're going to live in His presence, you can't stay where you are and you can't stay like you are. You see this walk in His presence. Jesus, Jesus doesn't stand still. Do you, have, you ever, have you picked that up so, so far? He doesn't stand still. And that is a great picture of discipleship and life being a journey. He says, you've got to come after me. If anyone's going to come after me, you're going to get on the road with him. And you're going to be making progress. You know what that means? That means you're a little bit more spiritually grounded this week than you were last. You've made up some distance in your life. You've covered some ground. You've made some progress. But more than that, if you're going to be in His presence, you've got to keep moving with Him. You can't stand still because He's going somewhere. He's doing something. So as disciples, our life is following Him. You understand, following is not standing. You don't stand. You don't sit. You don't stay like you are. You don't stay where you are. You're always moving. So here's what he says. He now begins to define. If you're going to stay with me, because I'm not going to stand still with you, and we're not going to stand around and nurse 30-year-old injuries forever, the way you're going to heal is we're going to get on the move. Here's your physical and spiritual therapy. You've got to come with me. You've got to stay up. Keep up. You're lagging behind. Pick up the pace. Come on, let's go. Because he's on the move. So he gives four things that you got to do if you're going to stay with him and enjoy his presence. And look, they come right from the text. Number one, this is what he says. If anyone wishes to come after me, he can, if he wants to, deny himself. Is that what the text says? Unless I'm so glad you're listening. Your Bible probably says, he what? He must deny himself. Oh boy. Gets right back to what Peter did. See, it means the most important thing in our life is not me. By the way, here's another cliche. Just hit me. <laughs> make Jesus Lord of your life. No, we don't make Him Lord. He, he is Lord, I. He is Lord. But what that means, what we're trying to get at with that cliche is He's the one calling the shots, not you. So is your life... And the pattern of your life, more doing what He wants you to do and what His Word says, or are you still doing what you want to do? Are you with me? Hey, and you don't have to look very far. This is not rocket science. You don't have to look very far to see where you are in that. What controls your day planner more? 
What controls your plans, your goals, your ambitions, your thoughts? Is it more what He wants or is it, no, it's strictly what I want. Jesus says, you can't stay up with me and enjoy my presence if you're not denying yourself. Because I promise you, self's going to take you in an opposite direction. Self's going to take you away from this next one. Notice what the next one is. If you're going to enjoy His presence, He says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to stay up with me and enjoy my fellowship and my presence, you've got to deny yourself. But number two, you've got to die daily. Check it out what He says. He says, take up His cross. You see, now, the, the cross is not a thorn in your flesh. It's not. A cross is something that you willingly take up. And a cross is an instrument of death. Paul said it like this. Paul said, I die daily. You cannot walk in resurrection power today unless you done picked up the cross and killed yourself. Crucified your own will, your own lust, your own desires. You can't walk with Him and at the same time satiate your own desires. So He says, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to die to self daily. So to enjoy His presence, number one, you got to deny yourself. To stay up with Him, you got to die daily. But number three, look what He says. He says, and follow me. You see, He's getting back to the same idea. And what that means is, it, it, it comes from a word based on, based on you're going down a road and there's a fork. And there always is a fork in the road. <laughs> Isn't there? There's always a fork. And what it means, you've got to be devoted to Him. No matter what the sign says going down that one fork, the other fork is the one you're going to take because it says following Christ this way. The other way might say the life of luxury, smooth sailing, no problems, hakuna matata, this way. What fork are you going to take? Are you going to take the path of least resistance? Or are you going to take the path that you can only go down if you've picked up your cross and died daily? You're denying yourself and you're so devoted to Him. And there is nothing more valuable to you than being in His presence. It doesn't matter what I walk through as long as I walk through it with Him. My heart is content and it is well with my soul. So here we go. Notice what he does. He tells us here, and look, man, that's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. We would say about somebody, if you do this, you are a radical believer. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that. These are minimum qualifications. These are minimum standards. This is the least that believers do. Deny themselves. Die daily in devotion to Him. So check it out. To enjoy His presence, He gives us three things to do. And then look what He does. He gives us in rapid-fire succession four reasons why you do that. Four reasons. And it's all marked out by one word in the Greek that's translated here in our English versions with the word for. For. And what He's saying is because. So why would somebody want to deny themselves? Why would somebody be foolish enough to want to pick up a cross? 
Why would somebody be foolish enough to want to be devoted to Christ when the other way is much easier? And he says, because. Here we go. So he gives us four because, becauses. Number one is found in verse number 35. For whosoever wishes to save his life, you see that little word life, underline it, will lose it. But whosoever loses his, here it is again, life, underline it, for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, here's why. And it's found in that word life. Why do you want to do all of those things? Because number one, it's a question of psychology. Of psychology. Because the word that he uses here is not the two normal words that's translated life in the Greek New Testament. One word is the word bios. We get our word biology from it. It's what everybody has just by the fact that you are a living organism. You have bios. The other word is the word zoe. Uh, there's a lot of dogs. I know some ladies named Zoe. It comes from this Greek word and it means the abundant life, the spiritual life that only comes in Christ. He doesn't use both of those. And there's a reason why he doesn't. The word that he uses here that's translated life is the Greek word suke. Suke. And it is the first four letters exactly of psycho, psychology. And it means soul. So he says, whosoever tries to save his soul is ultimately going to lose his soul. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. Let me just see if I can round a few of them up and put them in the pen real fast, okay? <laughs> Here we go. Why does he say soul and not life? Well, get this. Because the suke, your soul, is the seed of your emotions, of your will, your volition, all of those things. And do you know why so many people, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but do you know why so many people are so unstable psychologically? It's because of this right here. They're trying to save their soul their way. They're trying to pacify their emotions, do what feels good to them, and they end up being a basket case. Hey, if you don't believe me, have you ever noticed this about yourself? Have you ever noticed that you think, man, there's this one thing, and if I could get that one thing, I would be content. My life would be good. I would be happy. I would be a better person if I get this one thing. And you get that one thing, and you know what? When the new wears off, you're the same old grouchy sour push you were before you had it. Am I right? Have you ever noticed that? Why is it that so many people are chasing after things that they think are going to give them stability emotionally? Make them feel good. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says, you go down that path and I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to lose it. You will lose your soul. You will lose your psyche. You will be a psychological mess. And you don't have to look real hard to find that. Why is it that so many people who have end up on drugs, broken homes, abusive, they went down this road and they lost it psychologically, psychologically. They lost it. But here's another reason why Jesus says it. Let me speak contra a minute. Annihilationism. There's a lot of folk that think when you die, it's just the end of you. Boop, you're done. Jesus uses the word soul here. You're going to lose your soul. 
The reason he didn't use, use the word bios is because you're going to die one day and that's done. But you're going to lose that part of you that when your physical body dies, it keeps going on somewhere. And ultimately, if you try to save your suke, rather than taking up your cross, denying yourself, following him, you're going to lose your eternal soul. And check out what he does next. So why should we do what he says and enjoy his presence? Number one, it's a question of psychology. But the next verse, he says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and, here we go again, forfeit his soul? It's a matter of priority. Priority. So what is the priority? Is it gaining all these worldly, materialistic accumulations? Or is the priority on our eternal soul? One missionary said he is no fool who will give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So is the priority on our soul or is it on physical things? Hey, this always strikes us. Many times, most every Sunday morning, I promise you, the average person who comes to Grace Church spends more time on their physical body getting ready to come to church than we do on our soul all week. Huh? I mean, that's not a stretch for women. <laughs> They've got a little more preparation with makeup and all that stuff. I just get up in the morning and find my cleanest dirty shirt. But do we not spend more time physically getting ready than we do on our soul getting ready? This wouldn't be any issue right here if when you died your soul was annihilated, turns to dust and evaporates. And check out what Jesus says. He goes on even further. He tells why you should do this. It's a matter of a question of psychology. Verse 36 is a question of priority. Verse 37, it's a question of price. Look what he says, because or for. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Can I say this? In this life, nothing. But watch me. One nanosecond after your heart stops beating in your chest, there ain't enough gold on this planet that you would give in exchange for your soul. This don't sound like annihilationism, does it? No, it doesn't. It sounds like on that other side, there ain't nothing more valuable than my soul. But guess what? When you finally see it, it's too late. It's too late to do anything about it. You could be the owner of everything, and it's too late then because you gave your suke, your soul, in devotion to that for 75 or 80 years and you neglected the commands of Jesus. Deny yourself. Die daily. Take up your cross. Follow me. Be devoted to me. He gives a couple more reasons. Notice these fours. He said, one, it's a matter of psychology. Number two, a matter of priority. Number three, a matter of price. And number 38, look what he says. For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes and the glory of His Father with the holy angels. It's a matter of affiliation. You see, this verse used to bother me until I 
really got to digging out what Jesus says here. You know why? Because here's the way we normally interpret that. Oh, dear God, I had lunch today with a fella. I know he's not a believer, and I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him, and I didn't because I lost my courage. And the scripture says, because I'm ashamed of you, you're ashamed of me. That's not what he's getting at. He's not talking about lapses like that. He's talking about affiliation. Look what he says again. Let me show you in this verse. Whosoever is ashamed of me and my words. Look, in this adulterous and sinful generation, it's a locative of sphere. It means those people who permanently and continually associate themselves with and in the midst of those people who are sinful and adulterous, a part of this generation. And if you're in that group, if that's your circle of friends, if that's the sphere of your affiliation, then guess what? When he comes again, you're not going to be able to take him to the side and say, but Lord, wasn't my uncle a deacon? But Lord, didn't I do this on that Easter Sunday back in Bonifay, Florida? He's going to turn his back on you and be ashamed of you. So it's a matter of affiliation. And folk are still telling me today, well, I just think I can be a follower of Christ and not be affiliated with any church. That's a matter of affiliation. Normally when folks say that, they're telling me they had rather affiliate with the sinful and adulterous generation than they had the people of God. And that is an inconsistent confession of faith that Jesus is ultimately going to say was never true. Check it out. It's a question of psychology. It's a question of priority, of price, and of affiliation. But finally, and I'm going to shut her down, there is no question of its certainty. You see, Jesus gives the divine guarantee to what he just taught by this. Look in verse number 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now look, he's not talking about the second coming here. That's not what he's talking about. If that's the case, then there's got to be some of those guys still alive, right? So that would be inconsistent. But he's saying, I'm going to give you a guarantee of what I'm saying that it's true because y'all are going to see, some of you are going to see the kingdom come with power. You know when the kingdom came with power? Acts chapter 2, Daddy, Pentecost. When the Spirit of God was unleashed on all the people of God. When God poured out His presence and His power upon His people. That's the kingdom of God being initiated and coming in power. So is all of this that Jesus said reality? You better believe it is. Why? Because He gave us the guarantee. He's already sent the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is already initiated. We're well on our way. Hey, on what side are you standing? How consistent is your confession? Is your behavior matching what you believe? If not, may the Spirit of God teach us to be consistent. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the very fact that we can live in your presence.